Hi, We The People listeners. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. This week's episode is about Frederick Douglass's speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? Before we get to the episode, here's a recording of actor Ozzie Davis reading an excerpt from the speech, courtesy of Smithsonian Folkways Recordings. Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I, or those I represent, to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of national justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? And am I, therefore, called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us? Would to God, both for your sakes and ours, that an affirmative answer could be truthfully returned to these questions. Then would my task be light and my burden easy and delightful. For who is there so cold that a nation's sympathy could not warm him? Who so obdurate and dead to the claims of gratitude that would not thankfully acknowledge such priceless benefits? Who so stolid and selfish that would not give his voice to swell the hallelujahs of a nation's jubilee when the chains of servitude had been torn from his limbs. I am not that man. In a case like that, the dumb might eloquently speak and the lame man leap as in heart. But such is not the state of the case. I say it with a sad sense of disparity between us. I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers, it's shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. In 1852, the Ladies' Anti-Slavery Society of Rochester, New York, invited Frederick Douglass to give a July 4th speech. Douglas chose to speak on July 5th instead. Addressing an audience of about 600, he delivered one of his most iconic speeches that would become known by the name, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? On today's episode, we discuss Douglas's oration and his thoughts on the broken promises of equality and liberty. We'll also reflect on what the speech can teach us about the relationship between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the challenges America faces today. I'm joined by two of America's leading experts on Frederick Douglass. It is such an honor to have both of them on this Independence Day podcast. David Blight is Sterling Professor of American History at Yale University and Director of the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition at Yale. He is the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. David, thank you so much for joining. Uh, thank you, Jeffrey. It's an honor to be with you. And Lucas Morell is professor of politics and head of the politics department at Washington and Lee University. He is the author of the new book, Lincoln and the American Founding, and of many scholarly articles on Frederick Douglass. Lucas, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. 
Nice to be here with the National Constitution Center. Thank you so much. In his iconic speech, Frederick Douglass said, what to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. David Blight, what was the context for this speech and why is Douglas giving it when he did? Well, it's the summer of 1852. Um, He gives this speech uh, in the wake of uh, the publication that spring of Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, the book by Harriet Beecher Stowe that is taking the country and the world by storm. It will become the best-selling book of the 19th century. Uh, even more so, it's, it's only two years after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850, and there are uh, any number of fugitive slave rescues occurring all over the northern states at this time. Uh, and Frederick Douglass himself had participated in some of them uh, up through Rochester, New York, where he lived. There was an air and a spirit of uh, uses of violence in the air in the air about uh, the retrieval of fugitive slaves. It's also an election year. It's a big presidential election year, 1852. And the major political parties, the Democratic Party and the Whig Party, are beginning to fray, and particularly the Whigs are tearing themselves apart. The Nativist Know-Nothing Party has made great inroads, uh, as has the Free Soil Party ever since 1848. So the slavery crisis, especially the expansion of slavery, and now this issue of fugitive slaves has the whole country kind of on edge. And when Douglas is invited to deliver a 4th of July speech in Rochester, which is his home, he accepts. But of course, uh, he did not miss the opportunity uh, to take his audience kind of almost by the throat. And for that matter, a larger audience of the nation by the throat and drag them about a bit about American hypocrisy when it came to slavery. Taking his audience by the throat is a powerful and accurate way to convey the searing intensity of this speech. Lucas, what would you like to add about the context that led up to the speech? Tell us why he chose to give it on July 5th rather than July 4th, and then introduce us to the central theme of the speech. Sure. As David Blight's great book on Frederick Douglass points out, uh, it had been a practice by many uh, black Americans to give or celebrate, uh, give speeches and celebrate July 4th, the day after, as a way of indicating that uh, the time was out of sync or out of whack uh, in a country that professed that all men were created equal, and yet were not treating all men equal in the law. And so it had been something of a tradition, not uniformly practiced, but uh, a way for black people to say, you know what, the 4th isn't quite ours yet at least in practice, even though the truths of the Declaration certainly were true of them by nature and by birthright. Uh, You also learn from from David's book that uh, this is something of a shock for people to hear from Frederick Douglass, not just uh, the incendiary nature of his rhetoric, which he could do as well as uh, any abolitionist of the day, but because it was his first speech where he announced that he had a change of heart and mind in particular about the Constitution, which I'm sure we're going to talk about a little more. He had, uh, ever since he was on the stump with uh, you know other abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison and Wendell Phillips, uh, been one to argue that the Constitution was pro-slavery. But in this speech, he publicly for the first time, as opposed to just in correspondence, Uh, viewed and defended the Constitution as anti-slavery. And that really began to tear apart his relationship with his mentor, William Lloyd Garrison, and really put him at odds with a number of folks that he used to be quite good friends and certainly fellow travelers with on uh, the speaking circuit for abolitionism. He defends the Constitution. And astonishingly, for the first third, first half of this speech, says almost nothing bad about the American founding. He knows full well, he knows better than anybody walking the face of the earth, that they were slaveholders, and he studiously avoids mentioning that. And I'm sure we'll talk about why in a bit. Well, let's talk about it right now, because you're so right to raise it. As you suggest, Douglas says, it is a slander upon their memories, that is, the framers, to suggest that they embraced a pro-slavery document 
He says the subject has been handled with masterful power by Lysander Spooner, by William Goodell, by Samuel E. Sewell, and last though not least by Garrett Smith. These gentlemen have, I think, fully and clearly vindicated the Constitution from any design to support slavery for an hour. David Blake, tell us about these men, Lysander Spooner, Goodell, Sewell, and Smith. How did they persuade Douglas to change his mind about the Constitution being a pro-slavery document? Well, Goodell and Spooner in particular uh, had for a decade and more become the philosophers, if you like, uh, of uh, an anti-slavery interpretation of the Constitution. Garrett Smith was uh, the wealthy abolitionist who lived in upstate New York in Peterborough, who uh, became very close friends with Douglas. Indeed, he was a, uh, an underwriter of Douglas's newspaper, in fact. Uh, Douglas had, had been reading uh, Spooner and Goodell for some time. Uh, he'd also come under the influence of the Liberty Party, uh, uh, you know, t- under the influence of political abolitionists. And really the arguments that they were using boiled down to the guarantee in the Constitution of a, quote, Republican form of government to every state. And they even picked up on the language of the preamble in order to form a per- more perfect union. Douglas and others said, you can't be aiming at a perfect union and and uh, authorize slavery. And even more, they pointed to the Bill of Rights. They said the Bill of Rights is, 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 has liberation in it. The Bill of Rights has elements of equality in it. So you can't have a pro-slavery constitution that includes these provisions. But as Lucas said in the beginning of this speech, really the first third of it, it's the Declaration of Independence that Douglas folds into this. It's that, that's what that's what the day is about, of course, the 4th of July. And Douglas calls the 4th of July the American Passover. He knows his audience here. This is a very biblical Christian audience. And he calls uh, the Declaration itself, he calls it the ringbolt of American liberty, the ringbolt that rivets you down. And he says the principles, he, the four first, Jefferson's four first principles, natural rights, equality, Popular sovereignty, right of revolution. Douglas says they are, quote, saving principles. He says the principles are fantastic. The principles are eternal. The principles belong to everybody. It's the practices of this republic that are so contradictory, uh, so paradoxical, so terrible. And he's setting his audience up here by, he's setting them at ease. He's, He's honoring the glorious founders. He says we should all rejoice in the genius of these founders, but he is really setting the audience up for the moment when the hammer is going to come down for the whole second middle part of the speech, which will become this litany of the horrors of the slave trade, the holds of slave ships, auction blocks, domestic slave trade, every element of slavery you can imagine. He even, In this speech, this man was such a genius with language, he even helps his audience use their senses. He makes them hear slavery. He makes them smell slavery. He makes them feel slavery. Uh, he, he captures their emotions around this idea of what it meant to be enslaved in the middle of this speech after he has honored the genius of the founders for the 4th of July. You so well capture the power of his language, the existence of slavery in this country brands your republicanism as a sham, your humanity as a base pretense, and your Christianity as a lie. Lucas Morell, uh, tell us about uh, the change of mind of Douglas, the way that he came to see the Constitution as having been betrayed, and also his new conception of the relation between the Declaration and the Constitution. Yeah, he made a big point of reminding his audience that the preamble to the Constitution is something of a mission statement for the new federal union. I mean, it's new in the sense that it's, you know, it's a it's like a Hercules in the crib, right? We're an early uh, uh, infancy, as he puts it, and he actually stresses that in the early part of the speech that it, it the, the great good that has been done, thankfully, not all the good that could be done has been, and things can still be shaped and imprinted. So th- not everything is set in stone. There are certain things, as uh, David pointed out, 
that we do want to hold on to. We cling to this day, as he says, but also cling to those principles. They are saving principles. They're eternal principles. So the things that are true, these are the things that are fixed. These are the things that are natural. Uh, The unnatural things, uh, Lincoln will call the great behemoth of danger, that's slavery. So he 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 uh, he put a lot of stress on the preamble, the blessings of liberty. How do you square that with slavery? You can't. That's his point. Um, he paid close attention to the fact that wow, you know what? We've been using this document to uphold slavery. I don't see the word in it. In fact, that word is not used until we decide to get rid of it as a country in the 13th Amendment. So he drove a truck through, if that, if you will. It's not really a loophole. The whole document. Uh, you cannot find the word slave or slavery in it. There are some clear passages, at least they're clear to me in most of the country when Douglas gave this speech, that are compromises with slavery. Uh, Douglas doesn't agree. He is persuaded by uh, Goodell and Smith and Spooner that uh, we have to read the Constitution according to its letter. Uh, and according to the letter, if we stay within the four corners, if you will, I don't see slavery in it. As David mentioned, there's a uh, Republican guarantee clause, small r Republican, so that every state is guaranteed a Republican form of government. We're going to ensure that. You can't set up a monarchy or aristocracy. Well, what is the slaveholding states (laughs) Uh, but an oligarchy, if you will? But at any rate, uh, Douglas says, look, we've got to use the letter here to our advantage. Uh, It's not mentioned in if, if this document has been misinterpreted all this time and applied to uphold something that is contrary to its fundamental aim, the fundamental, uh, the the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity. Uh, There is absolutely nothing wrong with us trying to shape public opinion and get majority opinion to use this constitution correctly. And that is consistent with uh, Republican government, which is the people's things, all the people's, and, and that means their rights. And so he thought it was entirely uh, legitimate uh, for them to uh, take their bearings, not from some so-called intentions of the framers, uh, but actually according to what they wrote and what any, uh, as he called it, the plain sense, uh, the plain reading of the document, which of course uh, should be uh, something that everybody believes is true. That constitution doesn't belong to our rulers. It belongs to we the people. David Douglas also says, are the great principles of political freedom and natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? To what degree is his argument resting on the idea that slavery violates the natural rights of liberty that the Declaration promises and also of equal liberty? It absolutely stands on that. Uh, um, In the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening, Douglas was an advocate of the natural rights tradition. It was his fundamental set of beliefs. Uh, Douglas always drew on two great traditions, the secular enlightenment and the natural rights tradition, and, and then also on, on, on biblical traditions, uh, particularly Old Testament, Hebrew prophet traditions. Uh, that, that becomes such a source of his storytelling, of his source of metaphor and so on. And there's a lot of Bible, a lot of use of, the Psalms and Isaiah in this Fourth of July speech. I think there's seven biblical references if you look carefully. Uh, but, but what's really important here, and I'm so glad you asked this about natural rights, is that radical abolitionists have been struggling for some time now to find a way to use law instead of always being on the outside of law. Um, it, that's, of course, what William Lloyd Garrison's movement had done. They under William Lloyd Garrison's uh, Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, and Garrison was indeed Douglas's mentor, to say the least, through the 1840s. They had been very close, although they're going to have a terrible breakup over this ideological split. But abolitionists have been looking for a politics, a way to use law, a way to get inside of law, Because otherwise, by the 1850s, there's an awareness, and Douglas is part of this, as he's coming of age. We've got to remember, he's still only in his 30s at this point. In fact, he's he's barely in his 30s at this point. Um, They're looking for a way to use American law, because if they don't, the the only alternative that exists is eventually some kind of revolution, Uh, some kind of 
insurrectionary violence. Uh, and there's a lot of talk about that. There's a lot of rhetoric about that, especially in resistance to the fugitive slave law. But they're looking for a politics by which they can begin to put the, the country on notice, to put the country on a warning that if they don't face this problem, there is greater trouble to come. And that's exactly what Douglas does in the middle or toward the end of the 4th of July speech. He ends that litany, the middle of the speech. I like to call it a speech. It's like a symphony in three movements. And that second movement is the longest. This is the litany of all the horrors of slavery. It's like a hailstorm. He's raining down on his audience. That part ends with him, with him using the imagery of a horrible, his words, a horrible reptile coiled up at the nation's heart. Your heart is about to be eaten out by a horrible reptile unless you tear it away, he says, tear it away. And then right after that move, which is right out of Jonathan Edwards, in fact, it's one better than Jonathan Edwards, he pauses. The last part of the speech, it's not that long, but the last part of the speech, he kind of lets his audience up. He says, it's not quite too late. Your nation is still young and malleable. It's still possible for you to save yourselves. But there's a reptile coiled at the nation's heart, and it's going to eat it out if you don't do something about it. So uh, it's this combination of looking for a new politics that, that anti-slavery can use, as well as this deep biblical Jeremiahic tradition of warning the flock that if they don't act, history will act upon them and destroy them. Wow, thank you so much for reminding us that this is a Jeremiah, as you say, like the prophet Jeremiah, Douglas is denouncing the congregation for having fallen short of America's ideals and encouraging them to resurrect those ideals and be pointed toward the new Jerusalem. Lucas, tell us about the influence of the natural rights and natural law tradition on Douglas. Is he threatening violent revolution the way Jefferson did in the Declaration for those who break the social contract? And how, in that sense, does his oration relate to that of other uh, abolitionists like David Walker, who decades earlier had threatened violent revolution if the nation did not come back to its founding ideals? Yeah, it's a great question. It's something of a precursor of what became famous or infamous with uh, Malcolm X in one of his greatest speeches called The Ballot or the Bullet. Uh, Malcolm X probably got it from Abraham Lincoln, but he may have gotten it from Frederick Douglass, who also used that formulation, which is to say uh, it's always been the American way that we resolve our differences politically, which is to say peacefully, with words. Yes, we might even raise our voices at times, uh, but we debate, we argue, and then we pull the lever. We hope it works. No hanging chads. Uh, count them as fairly as we can, and then let the chips fall where we may. And as I teach my students, republics require two things, good winners and good losers. And uh, the ballot has to be almost the only way we resolve these things. But Douglas always remembers the past as well. And when, you know, American revolutionaries like Patrick Henry, who said what? Give me liberty or give me death. In other words, there's always that threat of the uh, exercise, the legitimate and just exercise of the natural right of revolution. It's not a constitutional right. It's not a political right. It's a natural right. It's one every human being is born with. You don't even have to be in a majority to exercise it. But that's always the last measure. You don't respond to a bad law with the exercise of the right of revolution. You, uh, you try to work through the law because, after all, at the end of the day, you want the benefit. You want the protection, the equal protection of the law. It's only when the regime is so corrupt that you think, huh, as the Declaration puts it, after a pattern of abuses and usurpa – a long train of abuses and usurpations, right, lifted right out of John Locke. Um, I think one thing uh, we should hasten to add about uh, Douglas's new political abolitionism, I'm, I'm glad that that was said that way, because I think today we think, well, of course abolitionism is political. Uh, that wasn't, and of course, uh, that wasn't obvious. William Lloyd Garrison, before Douglas, was the most famous, in my opinion, uh, abolitionist in, in the country, editor of The Liberator, uh, ever since, I think, January of 1831. And he was a member of a, of a school, shall we say, of moral suasion. They thought that the only way that you could achieve 
true righteousness and true right action had to come from the heart. And this was something that could not be coerced by violence or even through law, which, of course, is a command that comes with a sanction. Do this or get dinged. Uh, we would not do evil that good may result, right? You don't get good fruit from a bad tree, borrowing from the New Testament. And so the, the moral suasion school, which Frederick Douglass was a part of as an early stump speaker for abolitionism, said that the most you could do was maybe raise your voice. And certainly Garrison loved to speak in all caps in his newspaper, I will be heard. There's this great scene in Uncle Tom's Cabin when an escaped slave comes into, of all Christian groups, Quakers. Ah! And you know why I'm exasperated here, because Quakers don't believe in the use of violence. Well, there's a slave hound. There's a bounty hunter on the heels, and he comes up this precipice, and there's this uh, new convert to the faith. I forget his name, but it's a priceless scene that Stowe presents to us. They don't want the bounty hunter to apprehend the escaped slave, but they can't use violence to prevent it. So what does this guy do? Let's just say he savors of the old Adam. He rears back and with the sweep of of his hand, he says, brother, this is to the slave hunter, thou art not welcome here. And he knocks the slave hunter down the precipice accidentally, of course, hitting him with this you know, magnificent gesture of the arm. And then, of course, since it's Stowe and a novel, they go hustling down the hill and take care of him, patch him up, and he becomes a Quaker. All right, we can talk about that later. Point being, pa- you know, Garrison was a pacifist. And pacifists said that, that we are not in this by ourselves. God and we are a majority. And all our responsibility is once we rest ourselves of the taint of aiding and abetting slavery. So he was for dissolution, dissolving the union because free states are cooperating with slave states to uphold slavery. He says, once we dissolve the union, we also can trust that the conviction of the Lord, that the Holy Spirit will come upon the slaveholder once we point out to him that what he is doing is a sin and wrong, okay? So only moral suasion, words, right? We, we would not strike the devil to kill him was their point. And so that was the school from which or out of which Frederick Douglass's abolitionism, besides the school of slavery, if you will, was born. And so the shift to political abolitionism. Oh, really? We can run people for office? We could actually have a party? We could actually use the levers of the Constitution and the legislature and courts to do the right thing, to emancipate slaves? That was a breath of fresh air for Douglas. And when he, when he imbibed that air, he was in with both feet. And this speech is uh, arguably the most magnificent display of that. Wow, amazing stories. Uh, David, I want to ask you more about Douglas's intellectual influences. In your pathbreaking biography, you say that the book that changed Douglas's life was called The Columbian Orator, and it was a compilation of Enlightenment and classical and other sources from Cato and Cicero to Socrates and Milton and James Fox. Tell us about that book, how it shaped Douglas's intellectual and philosophical attitudes. And you talked about the Enlightenment and the Bible. To what degree do those classical sources influence his conceptions of liberty and equality? And then if I haven't given you too many questions, if you could just remind our listeners what the three parts of the speech are, because I want to make sure that we all have it down. Sure. Oh, gladly, uh, because the Colombian order... Uh, was a tremendous influence on the young Douglas's life. This is a book compiled in 1797 by a man named Caleb Bingham, who was from Connecticut. Uh, although he went to Dartmouth, he ended up in Boston. He was uh, he founded schools, uh, actually the first schools for, for girls in uh, New England. But he compiled this reader. It's a school reader in the 1790s. He called it the Columbian Order. It is a huge collection of both classical oratory from the Greeks and Romans, Cicero, uh, 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 Demosthenes, and others, but also especially rhetoric speeches from the Enlightenment years. Ben Franklin's in it, William Pitt is in it, and many, many others, even Jefferson. Also, though, Bingham included in this book 
uh, some dialogues, which were invented. I think there's six of them. Uh, invented dialogues aimed at children, at young readers. And one of those dialogues is, uh, is between a master and a slave. And the slave just talks his master into freeing him. You know, just like that. He makes a moral case, and by God, the master frees him. Well, if it's a 10 or a 12-year-old reading that, hey, why not? Persuasion. Uh, Douglas encounters this book on the streets of Baltimore when he's about 11 years old. 11 and 12. He encounters the book among his white friends. These are white boys who are, are all uh, sons of uh, Irish and German immigrant workers in the docks of Baltimore. And these kids aren't old enough to have learned their racism yet. They liked little Fred. They thought he was cool. Uh, they wondered why he couldn't go to school with them. Uh, and he found He's already become literate, of course, uh, having been taught his letters by one of his mistresses. And this kid, for reasons that are not entirely knowable, Douglas, had really taken to language. He wants to get a copy of this book. His buddies all have it. That's their school reader. And by the way, it had become by then the second largest selling school reader in the country, next to only the McGuffey reader. Anyway... Uh, and by the way, a lot of these uh, dialogues and some of the speeches in this collection were anti-slavery. There's just no question about it. Uh, and there was even a Maryland edition of this published in a slave state. Well, Douglas goes to a bookstore on Thames Street in Fells Point in Baltimore. And he uh, bargained, uh, basically, for a copy of the Columbian Order. And by age 12, he had his own copy. And it became one of the most precious things he had ever owned. And to make a long story short, when he was 18 years old, or 17 and 18, living as a rented slave on the eastern shore on a farm owned by a man named Freeland, Douglas tells us that on the Sabbath, on Sundays, when they weren't required to work, he would take what he called a band of brothers, other male slaves. He said at one point he had as many as 30, who knows? But he took his band of brothers out into a brush arbor or under some shade trees, and he would preach to them out of the Columbian order. He would practice rhetoric with them. And maybe the most important thing in that book was the 20-page introduction, because that introduction is a manual of oratory. It's a how-to. It, it's, it's about how to use your arms and your shoulders and your neck. It's about how to modulate your voice. It's how to begin slowly and reach crescendos. And right out of Aristotle, Caleb Bingham tells how a great orator must reach the heart of his audience, must reach a moral center in his audience. That was precious knowledge to this kid who had taken hold of language and now of preaching. And by the way, when he gets back to Baltimore, he attended no less than four different churches two of them with black preachers, two of them with white preachers. He'd heard a lot of sermonizing, a lot of, a lot of homiletics, if you like, by the time he ever escaped from slavery. But that Columbian order was so precious to him that when he escaped, uh, disguised as a sailor, in the pocket of his pantaloons, he had a few dollars and he had his copy of the Columbian order. That is all he carried out of slavery with him. And that very copy is today at the Douglas home in Anacostia in Washington, D.C. And one of the great thrills of my life as a historian is when the curators there let me have free reign one day, and I got to sit at Douglas's desk with what with gloves on and hold Douglas's copy of the Columbian Order. It, it, it's one of those weird things that historians are into, but it was, it was a thrill for me. Uh, and by the way, back to one last thing about what, what Lucas so beautifully said about what Douglas was doing in the 4th of July speech. Even uh, Thomas Paine gets in there. He uses the phrase about the times that try men's souls. He was pulling on so many different American references in that speech. It's, you know, as an American listening to that and an American reading that today, who's knowledgeable at all, it is amazing the references that will come out of that speech. It's one of the reasons I've always called it, you know, the rhetorical masterpiece of American abolition. Amazing. Um, I have to ask, because you said that it was, he was so influenced by Aristotle. 
were the three parts of the speech influenced by the classical models? And what were the three parts of the speech? Well, the speech does, I think, have three essential parts to it. They're like movements of, of music in a way. If you, if you see rhetoric and oratory as a kind of music, and I think Douglas did, he could hear the music of words in his head. That first part is where he sets the audience at ease, where he honors the founding fathers. This is the American Passover. The declaration is the ring bolt of your liberty. Uh, it, it, it's, it's beautiful. You know, it's a celebration, 4th of July. But then already he's beginning to rain down the you and the your and the you and the your. It's the you pronoun, uh, dozens of them. He just starts raining down on his audience. And finally, the hammer comes down. Pardon me, why have you invited me here to speak on the 4th of July? What have I to do with your 4th of July? 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. And so, and then he says, what we really need here today is sacrilegious irony. <laughs> not just irony, sacrilegious irony. And right after that begins the second movement of the speech, second part. And he begins with his very biblical audience by simply drawing them to the 137th Psalm. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and you asked us to hang our harps upon the willows, and you asked of us a song, which is Douglas's way of saying to them, you invited me here to sing for you? I'm not going to sing. I'm going to rip your heart out. And for the next 10 pages, that's what he does, this hailstorm of the history, really, of the slave trade of slavery and it's poisoned the way it has poisoned the American polity and American law and everything. And then, as I think I earlier said, that section ends with that metaphor of the reptile coiled at the nation's heart. That's the end of part two. And you can, you can just sense a pause in the speech. And those last three or four pages of the text are when he lets them back up he says, it's not quite too late. There's still hope for this republic. It has its creeds in order. The principles are fine. It's the practice that matters. And then, with tremendous irony, he ends that speech, for those of us who know the story anyway, he ends that speech by quoting from passages of a poem by William Lloyd Garrison, with whom he's just had this terrible personal breakup, and he's, and he's, you know, he's vacating himself from moral suasionism. And he ends with, passage, with verses from the, a poem by Garrison called Go Sound the Jubilee, which is the biblical word for, well, many things, but especially for liberation. Um, it's, a, it's a speech of rhetorical genius, but it is also a very powerful political message and I think the last thing I'd say about it is our man was a marketer. He had that baby printed up and ready to go already before he even delivered the speech. And when he went on the road, which he always did to speak now, he was selling copies of the 4th of July speech everywhere he went. And in his newspaper, the North Star, you could buy them, I think, for 50 cents a copy or, I don't know, 10 or $15 per hundred they were advertised for, for months on end afterward. But he was ready to take that way beyond Corinthian Hall in Rochester. And I've always been convinced this was one of those moments when the now quite famous Douglas was speaking well beyond that hall. He was speaking to the nation. He was speaking beyond the nation. He was speaking to us. Wow. As you say, he ends with... Garrison, God speed the year of jubilee, the wide world o'er, when from their galling chains set free, the oppressed shall vilely bend the knee and wear the yoke of tyranny. Amazing stuff. Lucas, uh, so much to respond to in what David said. I'm eager for your thoughts. And then tell us about the response to this speech. Did it change the debate in any way? And then take us to Lincoln. Did this speech influence Lincoln? And in your new book, you describe Lincoln's own evolution as he grappled with the legacy of the Declaration and the Constitution. Tell us about how those documents influenced Lincoln's constitutional thinking. 
Those are uh, wonderful questions. The first one, I think it's difficult to disentangle the impact of, or at least distinguish the impact of Douglas's one speech in a year where, you know, the Harry Potter, Danielle Steele, John Grisham all mashed together of the Uncle Tom's cabin. I mean, just blew up the legal copyrighted copies, you know, 300,000, I think the first year after it was serialized in a uh, abolition newspaper. So, um, I think the, I mean, I have to say that probably the biggest impact uh, uh, of of the year was the, was the novel by Stowe. I mean, that just, I mean, that really lit a fire under abolitionists, uh, especially in New England. Um, but I think more importantly for Douglas, this one really launched his career as a, a speaker in his own right. I mean, he made his living by giving speeches uh, for the rest of his life, right, until 1896. So. Um, I think that the, the, be- the, the biggest impact is the separation from the Garrisonian school and now making it legitimate for abolitionists uh, to genuinely embrace political action, uh, not just social or moral activism, uh, but political action. The actual hard work, in fact, as good an orator as he is, the hard work of changing people's minds and, 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 in fact, lighting a fire under those whose minds don't need to be changed, but they need to get off their butts and do something about it. As, as David intimated, right, there's this great line where he says, it is not light that is needed, but fire, not a gentle shower, but thunder, all right? So he still held on to some of that Garrisonian uh, verve, no doubt, uh, had his own resources for that as well, his own awful experience as a slave, um, but here's a guy in, in the middle of that speech where he says, you know, you're asking me for an argument? Who needs to be told? Who needs to be argued into the idea that, that being a slave is wrong? He says, there's no, no, no one under the canopy of heaven that doesn't know that slavery is wrong for him. He says, I would look ridiculous if, if, if your complaints about my fiery rhetoric is, oh, you need to calm down and persuade people. He's like, persuade people of what? They all know it. You know, he, he's preaching out of their own choir. You guys made this stuff up. I didn't. I didn't come up with all men are created equal. You said that, okay? I'm just trying to hold your, your hold you to it, right? I'm trying to close that gap between profession and practice. So in terms of its impact, I think the, the biggest impact, uh, I would say, is probably within his own circles and within his own um, brand. <laughs> David said he's, a, he's an excellent marketer uh, for sure. Um, here is a guy who's now embarking on a career on American soil. You've got to remember when his uh, narrative uh, uh, came out in 45, he had to flee the country because he may have physically escaped his uh, legal master, but in the eyes of the law, he was an outlaw. He was outside of the law's protection until he was legally manumated. Manumated. I mean, this is the big debate. I don't even know how it's still a debate among historians whether the slaves in the Civil War freed themselves or whether Lincoln did it. The obvious answer is yes. <laughs> right? Yes, they had to make their own efforts, as his preliminary emancipation proclamation said. Yeah, efforts they may make for their own liberation. But guess what? Now the federal government, with the authority of the executive department, now invites them into the folds of liberty rather than returning them to their legal masters. It was an engraved invitation from the president that the efforts you make, we will second. Without the law, they had to hightail it, not to the North, but to Canada, right? So, uh, and again, 1852, only two years after the revision of the Fugitive Slave Act, the notorious Fugitive Slave Act, Act, so, um, yeah, we needed, we needed law. And now um, Douglas is giving abolitionists and like-minded anti-slavery folks like Lincoln, um, who was already there, but folks who, are, who, are, who haven't really taken up the, the cause uh, to, to get their consciences riled and to, to do something about it. Um, where is Lincoln in this? You know, I tell you, I've been teaching for not as long as David, but I'm trying to catch up. I've uh, been teaching over a quarter century. Good grief. Don't do the math. Um, and it's, uh, I think a student should try a paper. Uh, there have been great, bi- uh, you know, dual biographies of Douglas and, and Lincoln. The best one, in my opinion, is, is by James Oakes, which won the Lincoln Prize. Um, but there, a student should do a paper on the many uh, affinities rhetorically between Douglas and Lincoln. David Blight uh, pointed out the ring bolt right? What phrase does Lincoln use? Sheet anchor. In a speech in 1854, two years after this one, 
Lincoln says that consent is the sheet anchor of American republicanism in his great Peoria address of 1854, which brought Lincoln back into politics with two feet. Um, I think you've got this ping pong match between these two guys uh, that nobody really wins, right? They, they keep the ball in, in play because one, in a way, uh, imitates or emulates the other. Uh, uh, David would be a better hand at, 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 at this than mine in terms of, of you know, how well-versed was Lincoln with Douglas. I think he was uh, exceedingly well-versed because these abolitionists, even though they had subscribers, they sent their papers uh, to people for free. They wanted that, the word to get out. So I don't doubt Lincoln was reading Douglas and um, – uh, was be, but both uh, being shaped, but also, uh, I think, as we see in Douglas's own writings later, um, being the shaper as well. So um, to, to get to your last question about the Declaration of Independence, Lincoln, of course, is probably the most famous and articulate connector of the Declaration to the Constitution, the Declaration being the aims or purposes of the regime and the Constitution being the means, the mechanisms, the structures of, of of liberty, if you will, even though it's it's compromised, at least in his mind, not Douglas's, in his mind with the compromises with slavery. And so Lincoln um, makes the battle for the founders the front burner issue in the 1850s with Stephen Douglas. Stephen Douglas also wants to wear the mantle of the founders. He claims he understands, quote, our revolutionary fathers, end quote, better than Lincoln does. And so what we really have there is um, a a battle over who has the correct interpretation of what the founders intended, what did they set into motion with the Declaration and the Constitution, and uh, the the successor, uh, the one who's successful in that rhetorical battle is going to set the course of the country and, in Lincoln's mind, will set the course on a future of a slave-free republic or a slave-holding republic. And this is one of the most bizarre things. Lincoln said that, that, that for Douglas, Douglas was insidious, not John Calhoun, not Jeff Davis, not Alexander Stevens, but Stephen Douglas, a Northern white, the leading Democrat in the 1850s, odds on favorite for the presidency in 1860 if the Democratic Party doesn't split. He says Douglas is the enemy. You know why? Because all that needs to happen for slavery to become truly national, enter into every territory, into every state, whether they want it or not, is for white Northerners not to care what happens to people who do not look like them in other places like the federal territories. That's the insidious nature of Douglas, and that's why people needed to reclaim the Declaration, reclaim its connection to the Constitution, and here is where he's on board with with Frederick Douglass. Use that preamble, the blessings of liberty. Liberty is the natural birthright the equal possession of the individual rights of law, of, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for every human being. Thank you so much for that and for introducing us to the relationship between Lincoln and Douglas. David, on that score, there is a monument in Washington, D.C. called the Emancipation Memorial, and it was paid for by formerly enslaved people. It's on Capitol Hill. It depicts a clothed Abraham Lincoln standing with a hand over a kneeling freed enslaved person. The other hand is holding an Emancipation Proclamation. There's now a controversy about whether or not to take the statue down. As it happens, Douglas gave a speech on the unveiling of the statue, and he talked about Lincoln's mixed legacy. Tell us what Douglas said about Lincoln in that speech, and in light of that, whether you think the statue should come down or not. Well, I personally, uh, well, Thank you first for that question, Jeffrey. I personally hope it does not come down. I hope it's still standing by the time this airs. <laughs> uh, there's obviously a roiling controversy over it now, like so many other memorials and monuments across the country. Uh, that monument, the Standing Lincoln and the Kneeling Slave, was unveiled uh, April 14, 1876, the 11th anniversary of Lincoln's assassination. Uh, again, the context is crucial here. It had taken years to conceive and build this monument. There had been many other models for it. Uh, it was, in the end, paid for, as you said, by almost entirely by African Americans. It cost $20,000 in, in 1870s money. The first $5 was given by an African American woman, former slave, named Charlotte Scott from Missouri. The model for the kneeling slave was a very real person named Archer Alexander, who had been the last Missouri slave 
arrested under the Fugitive Slave Act in the middle of the Civil War, 1863. He later went on to some local fame because of that. Uh, And his photograph was taken and sent to the sculptor, Thomas Ball, who actually lived in Italy. At any rate, at the unveiling of this monument, controversial as it was then and clearly still is, Douglas was order of the day. The whole event at the unveiling was an African-American event, by and large. It was a huge parade that day. It was a very typical black Washington, D.C. parade with bands and drum and bugle corps and fraternal orders, and everybody was out in costume. Uh, the master of ceremonies was John Mercer Langston, the African-American freeborn uh, dean of the Howard University Law School, a young black poet named Charlotte Ray, uh, read an original poem, an AME bishop gave the uh, invocation. And so it was a black affair. But the audience was, uh, was a remarkable audience. First, it was thousands of people. But up front were President Grant, members of his cabinet, justices of the Supreme Court, and members of the House and the Senate, the entire government. The day was declared a federal holiday. Douglas wrote a very special speech for this occasion, too. He didn't blow this one off. Again, he could have done a ceremonial talk and said, Lincoln was a great man, isn't it? A beautiful April spring day. Hurrah for the United States. We've survived and yada, yada. No. He gave a dead, honest, straightforward speech in Again, in two parts. The first part is where Douglas famously says, Abraham Lincoln was the white man's president. He was in every way a white man in his assumptions and his prejudices. He was not our man, he says, our being African-American. And he says in the most famous line of the speech, my fellow white citizens, Abraham, you are Abraham Lincoln's children. I and my people are his stepchildren, stepchildren by adoption, circumstances, and necessity. That's a blunt metaphor. That's a a brutal metaphor in a way. However, there's a pause after that. Again, in the last part of the speech, Douglas says, but, and then he uses a refrain three times, under his rule and in due time, meaning Lincoln, is how we became free. And he embraces, even admires, the caution, the kind of pragmatic political caution by which Lincoln came to emancipation in the midst of all-out civil war. And he says the timing and method of doing this was Abraham Lincoln's alone. And it becomes his way of both Uh, declaring the Lincoln of the first year of the war of 1861, when Douglas was a ferocious critic of Lincoln, and the Lincoln of 1863-64 up to 65, the Lincoln who grew to the point of emancipation, the Lincoln who crafted the Emancipation Proclamation and the policy by which the armies would free the slaves. It is both of those things that Douglas is doing. And last but not least, At the end of this speech, with that audience, Grant, Cabinet, Congress, Supreme Court, he basically is warning them, you are losing Reconstruction. Reconstruction is falling apart. There are only three states left in the South, unredeemed by the Democratic Party. It may be too late, but you may still have a chance to save Reconstruction. And what what he's in effect done there is enlisted Lincoln's memory, you know, the great symbolic power of Lincoln's memory here, to the cause of black civil and political rights. He's putting Lincoln on that on their side in that sense. And uh, it's a masterpiece. It's only 13 pages long. And to me, one of the reasons I want that memorial preserved, although I'd love to see it enhanced, I think what we really need to see now is a big, if not national commission, some kind of commission created to now begin to think imaginatively about emancipation memorials to replace all these Confederate monuments. But I, and Douglas himself actually advocated for that in his own time. Uh, I'd like to see an additional memorial put up there because I think in some ways it's the rarest of cases. But Douglas's speech, at least to me, of course I'm a Douglas historian, but his speech rendered that ground all but sacred. 
and the way that he converted Lincoln to the cause of black liberty, civil and political rights forever. And I just fear that if you take that monument out of Lincoln Park and you stick it in the corner of some museum where it's nothing but a curiosity, no one will ever really learn this. And why not have a great new modern emancipation memorial without kneeling slaves, of course, next to that monument, which can be reconfigured at least with a narrative around it, and think of what we could learn from the juxtaposition of the two of them about past and present. Uh, We can't just purify the past, and we surely can't purify our memory. But this is a case where I want a monument preserved because we really can learn from it, especially while we are taking down all... We're taking the Confederacy off our landscape. What are we going to replace it with? Wow. Lucas, you have written and spoken about this Emancipation Memorial as well. You sent me a letter to the editor that Douglas wrote five days after his oration in memory of Abraham Lincoln. Tell us what he said in that letter, what you think of the speech, whether you think the monument should stay up or come down or be contextualized, and if it should be contextualized, how so? Yeah, I'll just start by saying I agree wholeheartedly with David Blight that it would be enhanced by the addition of at least one more, if not several, uh, monuments. Uh, It's a letter that he writes to the National Republican, which is a D.C. newspaper, five days after he delivers the eulogy uh, to Lincoln, oration in memory of Abraham Lincoln. So on April 19th, um, he says, you know, that what that statue represents isn't the whole truth. The mere act of breaking, as he puts it, the Negro's chains was the act of Abraham Lincoln and is beautifully expressed in this monument. Close quote. But that's not the end of his letter. <laughs> in the letter, he says, there is room in Lincoln Park for another monument. And he's saying this, and David is right to point out, the number one person he needs to say this to is Grant. He loves Grant because if Lincoln freed the slaves... Grant has done what he could to make them citizens. That's the thing. It's not just liberation. It's citizenship. Long overdue. And of course, with citizenship in his mind, it's the vote. Have to give black people the vote. Without the vote, they are slaves of the community rather than an individual, as he said so many times. Now you're thinking, Lucas, I thought the 15th Amendment was uh, ratified back in uh, 1870. What are you talking about the vote? Uh, As David pointed out, yeah, the South, quote-unquote, is on its way to being redeemed, as they put it, getting out of bayonet rule, the federal government and the military occupation. Douglas knows without the help of the federal government putting teeth into the constitutional bite, if you will, of the 15th Amendment, the blacks are going to be at the mercy of their former legal enslavers, and that can't do so in a speech where he he goes overboard, in my opinion, tying Lincoln to... Uh, the white-collar bigotry of the day, he has to do it because if Lincoln remains the black man's president, if you will, they'll say, oh, well, yeah, he freed the slaves. Nothing more to do. Nothing to see here. Uh Uh-uh. Douglas is like, "Uh uh-uh. We blacks may have erected one monument. This country should be littered with monuments put up by white people for their president, Abraham Lincoln, in honor of what he did, yes, for us and for the country. And so he is enlisting that legacy of, of Lincoln to, if you will, he still speaks today. He still has relevance. He still is germane today for what all American citizens, in particular black American citizens at this time in 1876, uh, need. Uh, and so he says, you know, with Grant, we need something that can't be said just with this particular uh, monument. As he puts it, the act by which the Negro was made a citizen of the United States invested with the elective franchise, the vote, was preeminently the act of President U.S. Grant, not of Lincoln. This is nowhere seen in the Lincoln Monument. So Douglas, he has told us what to do about the monument right now that, in fact, in Boston, its copy, they have voted unanimously to remove their emancipation group, their Freedmen's Memorial. It's going to be gone. And as David said, it's going to gather dust somewhere. In the same way, that wonderful bas relief of the 54th is behind a bus stop on Boston Commons. You don't even notice it. It's on the other side of the park. I mean, it's behind a bus stop. Is that going to happen to the emancipation group in in D.C.? I hope not. Uh, And so I think Douglas told us uh, a long, long time ago what should be done with a monument that was not 
one he conceived of, even though he was on the commission that, that brought about the fundraising, etc. Um, it didn't tell the whole story, but it did tell the story it was intended to tell, the moment of liberation, not a kneeling slave, but a crouching one. One, as it were, if you look at it carefully, you know, the, the muscles, the sinews are tense. This is a sprinter at the blocks. He's not looking at Lincoln. He's looking past Lincoln. He's looking to the future. What will the full flowering of liberty look like? That's what the statue should show. That's why Douglas wanted him erect, standing up, fully clothed. In other words, this is what a human being looks like. Nay, this is what a citizen looks like. And that's the kind of story that Lincoln Park should tell. It can be done with these explanatory plaques. Uh, and it can be done in particular by the addition of one or two statues, one that should be of Charlotte Scott and the other one of Frederick Douglass, in my opinion. But, of course, I'll never be appointed to that commission, but I'll let David work on that. No, you both you both should uh, chair the commission, and uh, thank you for the amazing suggestions. Well, as Lincoln said in the first inaugural, I am loath to close. This is an amazing <laughs> conversation, but close we must, and uh, David the first of our closing arguments is to you. And the question for our We the People listeners is, what can Douglas's 4th of July oration tell us about our current vexations? What would he say today? Well, uh, he would, I mean, again, we don't know, but, but he would no doubt remind us of what is now obvious. This republic, this thing, this idea, this America, those principles embedded in the Declaration, and then re-embedded in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and then re-embedded in that second reckoning of the Civil Rights Movement, the 64 Civil Rights Act, the 65 Voting Rights Act. It's always unfinished. That would, I think, be his argument. He'd be surprised. I'm sure he'd be shocked. He'd probably look at the protest today and say, man, I died 130 some, 125 years ago. Y'all are still at this? My God, you know. Uh, but, but given the fact that he had such a long view of history, uh, he'd say, well, yeah, this thing is always unfinished. But my God, you, you're, having, you're having this amazing reckoning, and you ought to get it right this time. By the way, one little sliver of, uh, I love doing this, uh, one little sliver of context on, Douglas's embrace of Grant in that incredible letter, which I only learned about in the past week from the intrepid research of Scott Sandage and John White. Um, Douglas is also campaigning at that point to try to get Grant to run for a third term. <laughs> and the convention hadn't been held yet. He really wanted Grant to run again because uh, he really wasn't sure whether he could trust the rest of the Republicans. So I've always, I've read that as a little bit of nudging of Grant, maybe. I don't know. Uh, not that he had that much influence over Grant. But Douglas would remind us that uh, this experiment is, by almost by definition, always unfinished, always under revision, uh, under attack and under, you know, under uh, defense and then under remaking. And we're at a time when we got to do some remaking. Lucas, the last word is to you. What can Douglas's oration Tell us about our current vexations and what would Douglas say to us today? Yeah, Douglas uh, is the right man to think about as we look towards the celebration of our national independence on July 4th. Right now, there I'm sure there is a, a portion of the country that wonders whether there's anything to be proud of in our past. Uh, the past is being attacked in so many ways, not just through physical objects, uh, but through with words. Uh, what you know, we're we're now even confused apparently about what our true founding is, and so I think we need to do some serious soul searching. Douglas says in that speech, "My business, if I have any here today, is with the present." Um, he is constantly trying to figure out, well, what's next to do? What's next to do? What's next to do? And right now, what's next to do is uh, think about seriously. Uh, what Douglas thought we were not supposed to lose sight of, not let go of, in fact, cling. He said, cling to this day. And that day was July 4th, July 4th of 1776. Um, and here's a guy who does not, he, he's fully aware that 20 uh, Africans landed at Point Comfort near Jamestown in, in, in Virginia, the Virginia colony, the first English colony there. He's fully aware of how uh, uh, tied our history has been 
to the legacy of slavery and racial bigotry. Um, he got to that way before any of the recent uh, kerfuffles over that issue. He knows that whole story. But here is a man who thought something truly new was born, July 4th, 1776, in my opinion. He said those were saving principles, eternal principles. Hold on to that. That's a ring bolt, right? As Lincoln put it, the sheet anchor of the American Republic. We've got to decide whether that model still holds or what the alternative is going to be. And believe me, there are alternatives being presented and working their their way out right now. And uh, Douglas would not be content with just eating hot dogs, or as Lincoln put it, just burning firecrackers on July 4th, even though I love that, and they're all already doing it in my neighborhood. Um, he would say, take this moment not just to say, we have Washington to our father, right? <laughs> we have Abraham to our father, as he so uh, uh, brilliantly alluded. Uh, it's not just about saying, I'm an American. It's about asking, what is the meaning of America? And uh, to figure out a way in which, in my opinion, we could have our practice line up more consistently with our profession. I'll, I'll leave the last word to a former president, William Jefferson Clinton. The best thing he ever said was from his first inaugural address where he said, borrowing from, from Ike, Dwight Eisenhower, he said, there's nothing wrong with America that cannot be cured with what is right with America. So we've got to figure out what is right with this country and then take our bearings from there. Thank you so much, David Blight and Lucas Morell, for a truly inspiring and illuminating discussion of Frederick Douglass's legacy. Hope that everyone has a meaningful 4th of July weekend. And David Blight, Lucas Morell, thank you so much for joining. Uh, thank you, Jeffrey, and thank you, Lucas. Thank you guys both. Wonderful time. Today's show was engineered by the National Constitution Center's AV team and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Nicholas Mosvick, Lana Ulrich, and the Constitutional Content Team. The homework of the week? Well, it's obvious. Read or listen to Frederick Douglass's galvanizing speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? We'll also include a link to the full text of the speech in the episode description. You can also watch or listen to great recordings of the speech, so we'll post some links to videos as well. And please also read David Blight's pathbreaking biography, Frederick Douglass, and Lucas Morell's Lincoln and the American Founding. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to anyone anywhere who is hungry for enlightening constitutional debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including amazing conversations like the one we just heard at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, have a meaningful July 4th commemoration. I'm Jeffrey Rosen.